Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons on Paul's letter to the Philippians, and the text for the sermon today is taken from Philippians 3 and verse 3. There the Apostle Paul writes these words, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. May the Lord bless the preaching of his holy word to our hearts. Dear friends, if you had to define a true Christian, what would you say? Some might say a true Christian is someone who reads his Bible, he prays, he goes to church, he tithes a portion of his income, he strives to live a holy life, he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he is good and kind to his neighbors, and you'd be absolutely right. A true Christian is all of these things and more. The Heidelberg Catechism provides a more extended definition of a true Christian in Lord's Day 12, question and answer 32. There the question is asked, why are you called a Christian? And the answer is, because I am a member of Christ by faith, thus am a partaker of his anointing, that so I may confess his name and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, And also, with a free and good conscience, I may fight against sin in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. So the Catechism here teaches us that a true Christian is one who is a prophet, a priest, and a king. But the Apostle Paul in our text gives a different answer to this question. Last week we reflected on Philippians 3 and verse 2. And there the apostle warned us against false teachers, in particular, the Judaizers. Now you may remember, the Judaizers were Christians who believed that in order to be saved, one not only had to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, one also had to obey the law of Moses. In particular, one had to be circumcised. Circumcision, they said, was essential for salvation. Now, Paul condemned such people as dogs, evil workers, and mutilators. And he did so because he rightly perceived that by insisting on circumcision, the Judaizers were undermining the sufficiency of the work of Christ and the truth that we are justified by faith and faith alone. In their view, we are saved by faith plus works, namely circumcision, But Paul insisted that we are saved by faith alone. Now following this, and by way of contrast, Paul goes on in verse 3 to define the true Christian. And he writes, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So in this verse, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mentions three distinguishing characteristics of the true Christian. He worships God in the Spirit, he rejoices in Christ Jesus, and he has no confidence in the flesh. Well, it's to that subject that we turn our attention today with the help of the Lord. And my theme is the true Christian. And we'll consider, first of all, the operation they undergo, 
and secondly, the marks that they manifest. Paul begins his definition of the true Christian by describing the operation they undergo. Now, what is this operation? Well, he tells us it is circumcision. Paul writes, we are the circumcision. Now, circumcision was the sign and seal of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, just as baptism is today. It communicated that the person who was circumcised was a member of God's covenant community. God was his God, and he was his covenant child. Now, since the Israelites were God's covenant people, God commanded that all of the males in Israel be circumcised at eight days of age. And as a result, the people of Israel came to be known as the circumcision. This was their defining characteristic. This was the one thing that separated them, outwardly at least, from all the other nations on the earth. Now, Paul takes that term and he applies it to the Philippians. He says, we, that includes you Philippians, we are the circumcision. In fact, in the original Greek, the word we is emphatic. And so what Paul is saying here literally is we ourselves, or we and we alone are the circumcision. Now, how could Paul say that? In what sense were the Philippians the circumcision? Especially since most of them were not Jews, and therefore had never been physically circumcised. Well, they were the circumcision, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. They had been circumcised in their hearts. And that, after all, is what circumcision pointed to and even demanded. The Scriptures teach that it was not enough to be circumcised outwardly only. One also had to be circumcised inwardly. One had to be circumcised in the heart, meaning one had to be born again. One had to be given a new heart, one that hates sin and loves God and pursues after holiness. Now, that this was the meaning of circumcision is clear from several passages in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, Moses commanded the people of Israel to circumcise the foreskin of their heart and to be stiff-necked no longer. A few chapters later, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses writes this, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Jeremiah 4 verse 4 says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. Now Paul picks up on this Old Testament reality when he writes in Romans 2 verse 29 that he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, we call this circumcision of the heart regeneration. Regeneration is that operation of the Holy Spirit by which he makes the sinner who was hitherto spiritually dead, spiritually alive. It's like circumcision in that in regeneration, the Holy Spirit removes sin as the dominant influence in our lives in the same way that the foreskin is removed in circumcision. Well, such were the Philippians. They had been circumcised in their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul acknowledges this when he calls them the circumcision. Now, in making this statement, you understand Paul is making a sharp contrast. 
The Judaizers, whom Paul had just announced in verse 2, said that they were the circumcision. But Paul says, no, that's not true. Because they had only been circumcised outwardly, but the Philippians had been circumcised inwardly. And therefore, they and they alone could claim to be the circumcision. Now, the Christian, therefore, is one who has been circumcised in his heart. And I ask you today, have you also been circumcised in your heart? Have you received a new heart from God through his word and Holy Spirit? Are you born again by the word and spirit of God? How necessary that is. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. To be circumcised in your heart, to be born again, is absolutely essential to salvation. And everyone who claims to be a Christian must undergo this vital operation. Now perhaps you say, well, how can I tell if I have been circumcised in my heart? Well, it will manifest itself in your life. And that brings us to our second point. We can know if we are circumcised in our hearts by looking for the marks of circumcision. Now, there are many such marks. Someone who's circumcised in their heart is convicted by their sins. He believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's trusting in Christ as the only hope and ground of his salvation. He's striving to live a holy life. He loves the Word of God. He loves the people of God. He loves the church of God. But there are other marks as well. And Paul mentions three of them in our text. First of all, he says those who are circumcised in their heart worship God. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. It's for that reason that God created us and redeemed us. God did not redeem us merely so that we can avoid going to hell. He redeemed us so that we might worship Him. The believer is one who worships God. In fact, his whole life is worship. And worship is his first priority. It's the first thing he does when he gets up in the morning, and ideally the last thing he does when he goes to bed at night. It's especially his priority on the Lord's Day. The true believer does not allow anyone or anything within his or her control to stand in the way of coming to church to worship God. Whenever there's a worship service, he's there. Not so much because he feels he has to be there, but because he wants to be there. And that's because, other than God, there is nothing the true believer delights in more than worshiping God in the company of his people. And when he cannot do so, either because of sickness or old age or necessary travel or when he's on vacation, he misses it and he can't wait to get back. The psalmist expresses the attitude of the true believer when it comes to public worship in Psalm 84. And there he exclaims these words, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So you see here, the true believer longs, yes, even faints, to gather together for worship with the people of God. Doing so is so important to him, in fact, that he declares to the Lord in verse 10 that a day in your courts is better than a thousand. He also declares that he would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of his God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And so the believer is one who worships God, and he does so gladly and with great delight. But notice how he does so. Paul says he worships God in the Spirit. Now, in the New King James Version, as well as several other leading translations, the word spirit is capitalized. 
meaning the translators believe that this word refers to the Holy Spirit. But the authorized version, the old King James, uses the word spirit in the lower case, meaning the translators of that version believe that this word refers not to the Holy Spirit, but rather to the human spirit. Now, it's not necessary to choose one or the other, as both of these are absolutely correct. The true believer worships God in his spirit, but he can only do so in the Holy Spirit, that is, as he is led and guided and energized by the Spirit of the living God. Now, what does this mean exactly? What does it mean to worship God in the Spirit? Well, very simply, it means to worship God from the heart. When the true believer worships God, he does not simply go through the motions. He is totally engaged. He worships God from the heart with every fiber of his being. His mind, his will, his affections are all involved. Now, Jesus says something similar in John chapter 4. In that chapter, we have the record of Jesus' conversation with the woman of Samaria at the well of Sychar. When this woman realized that Jesus was a prophet, she asked him a question about worship. She wanted to know where the people should worship God, in Jerusalem as the Jews taught, or on Mount Gerizim as the Samaritans believed. And in response to this question, Jesus said this, He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and and truth. Jesus here was teaching this woman that when it came to worship, what mattered to God most was not the outward form, certainly not the location, but rather the disposition of the heart. God is seeking people to worship him with their heart, a heart that has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. Now Paul says the same thing here in our text. The true believer worships God in the Spirit. Now, in making that statement, the apostle is again forming a sharp contrast with the Judaizers of his day. The Judaizers did not worship God in the Spirit. They were only concerned about the outward form. Their only concern was whether or not someone was circumcised. They said that as long as you're circumcised, that's all that matters. All that God cares about is the form. And there are still many people like that in the church today. To them, worship is all about the form. It's all about practicing certain rituals and keeping up certain traditions and doing things a certain way. But the Apostle Paul says, no, the true Christian worships God in the Spirit. Now, to be sure, the believer also cares about the form. He understands that God is to be worshipped only as he has prescribed in his word and not according to our own thoughts and our own ideas and our own feelings. But he knows that having the form without the Spirit is utterly unacceptable to God. And consequently, he strives to worship God in the Spirit, as Paul says. But that's not all. For the Greek word that Paul uses here can also mean ministry or service. In fact, that's its primary meaning. 
In Matthew 4, verse 10, Jesus says to Satan, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And in Hebrews 13, verse 10, the writer observes that we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, in both of those verses, the word translated serve is the same word that's used here in our text. Now, this reminds us that there's a close connection between worship and service. And that's why we speak of the worship service. Because when we worship, we are serving. And when we serve, we worship. In other words, worship is not just something that we do on Sundays when we are in church. It's something that we must do every day of the week. In fact, worship must permeate every aspect of our lives. Everything we do must be an act of worship and praise to God. One commentator writes this. He said, by using this broad word, Paul brings the totality of the Christian life under the category of worship. It is a life that is oriented towards pleasing God for his glory and for our eternal joy. Now, needless to say, this is highly significant. When we understand that all of life is worship, then two things will be true. First of all, we will be careful not to waste time. And it's amazing how much time we waste in a given day. But when we understand that all of life is worship, then we will make every every moment of every day count for something. Secondly, even the most mundane tasks take on additional meaning. So cleaning the house, doing the laundry, preparing meals, cutting the grass, washing the car, shopping for groceries, changing the baby's diaper, whatever we do is an act of service to God. And that means we must do these things without grumbling and complaining, but rather joyfully and thankfully out of love for and thankfulness to our God. Well, my friend, is that true for you today? Do you worship and serve God in the Spirit? If so, then you are a true Christian. The second mark of a true believer that Paul mentions in our text is he rejoices in Christ Jesus. Now the word rejoice here can also be translated as glory or boast. In the original Greek, it appears in the present tense, meaning it's describing an ongoing action. And so what Paul is saying here is this, he rejoices or boasts continually in Christ Jesus. Now here too, Paul is forming a contrast between the Judaizers and the Philippians, who are true believers. The Judaizers boasted in their circumcision. For them, circumcision was a badge of honor. It was the one thing that separated them from all the other peoples of the world. And it was also a mark of God's favor and blessing. The true believer, however, does not boast in anything in himself, and that for the simple reason that he has nothing in himself to boast about. When he looks at himself, he sees nothing but sin and shortcoming, and that includes his religious observances. Rather, he boasts in Christ Jesus. And why does he boast in Christ Jesus? Because Christ Jesus is the source of his righteousness. You see, the believer understands that the righteousness that he needs in order to stand before God 
must be absolutely perfect because God is absolutely holy. And he understands further that we do not possess this righteousness in and of ourselves, nor can we earn it. But what we cannot do, Christ has done. He is our righteousness. He earned it by living a life of perfect obedience to the law of God all the time that he lived on this earth. And when we believe in him and we look to him as the only hope and ground of our salvation, Christ imputes his righteousness to us such that we stand before God as though we had never sinned. And the believer knows that. He knows that through Christ he has peace with God and the gift of everlasting life. And that's why he boasts, not in self, not in what he has done or what he can do, but solely and exclusively in Christ Jesus. Oh, my friend, do you rejoice in Christ Jesus today? That too is a mark of, true, of a true Christian. The third mark of a true Christian that Paul mentions here is he has no confidence in the flesh. Now that follows from the previous mark, doesn't it? The reason why the believer rejoices in Christ Jesus is because he puts no confidence in the flesh. And the reason why he puts no confidence in the flesh is because he rejoices in Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean? What does Paul mean here by this phrase, the flesh? Well, in broad terms, the flesh is anything in man or anything man thinks he can do to earn all or even part of his salvation before God. Paul calls it flesh because these things are done in the flesh, that is, by human power, apart from the grace of God. And Paul mentions some of these things in verses 4 to 6, which we hope to look at next time, God willing. He mentions, for example, all the things that he once thought counted something towards his salvation. He mentions the fact that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. All of these things are works of the flesh. These are the things that we do to try to make ourselves look more presentable to God, or things that we try to do to earn our own salvation. Now, for the Judaizers, it was circumcision. But it could be anything. It could be your baptism. It could be your church attendance. It could be your spiritual devotion, your religious exercises, your good works, your spiritual experiences, anything. The flesh is anything you are resting in or trusting in to make yourself right before God. And the true believer, Paul says, has come to trust in none of these things. Why not? Because the Holy Spirit has opened his eyes to see that he can do nothing to earn his own salvation. That if he is ever going to be saved, he needs a righteousness that is not his own. He needs a perfect righteousness. He needs the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And realizing that, he abandons all confidence in the flesh and he comes to rest wholly and completely in Christ and his finished work. Well, dear friends, is that true for you today? Have you also come to the point where you have lost all confidence in the flesh? You know, that doesn't come by nature. By nature, we are enemies of grace. 
We like to think that we can do something. We like to think that we can contribute something towards our own salvation. And the reason is because that way we can take at least part of the credit for ourselves. You see, we don't see ourselves for who and what we are in reality. That we are poor, miserable, hell-deserving sinners who are utterly incapable of doing anything good. In order to see this, our eyes need to be opened by the Spirit of God. He must make us see and understand that we can do nothing towards our own salvation, that our only hope is in Christ Jesus. And then he must work faith in our hearts such that we come to trust in him as the only hope and ground of our salvation. Isn't that also what the Apostle Paul experienced? After listening in verses 4 to 6, all of the things that he thought could make him right before God, Paul declares in verses 7 and 9 of the same chapter that what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed also I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul came to the realization that there was nothing that he could do to earn his own salvation before God, that his standing before God was not based on anything in himself. It was entirely and exclusively in Christ. Have you also come to that realization, my friend, then you are a true Christian. For a true Christian has no confidence in the flesh. Well, this is what it means to be a true Christian. A true Christian is one who worships God in the Spirit, he rejoices in Christ Jesus, and he has no confidence in the flesh. Let me ask you, as I close, are you a true Christian? Now, maybe some of you are saying, well, I don't like that question. It makes me feel unsettled. It takes away my joy. It undermines my assurance. Well, that may be, but I must ask it. Why? Because there's so much easy believism and presumption in the church today. In addition to that, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, as the Scriptures say. And that means we can so easily deceive ourselves into thinking that we are true Christians when in fact we are not, and in the end, damn our souls to hell. And so I ask you again, are you a true Christian? Oh, if you are, then thank God. That's his doing. It's not your doing. It's his doing. It's all of grace. It's all of God's sovereign power and grace, and therefore all the glory belongs to him. But if you're not a true Christian, or if you're lacking these marks that Paul mentions here in our text, oh, my friend, I urge you then, go to the Lord. Ask him to circumcise your heart. Ask him to make you a new creature in Christ Jesus, and he will, for he promised to do so. His word is so full of promises to every sinner who calls upon him. He will gladly and freely save. He will in no wise cast anyone out. Oh, may God so apply his word to our hearts so that we may all say by God's grace and with a clear conscience and based on solid evidence, I am a true Christian. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X, 
2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's all one word, banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X 2M9. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.